Let's take our Bibles as we start this morning and talking about how much we need and more than what we want and sometimes acknowledge. I'm going to invite you to take your Bibles and go to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and then Ephesians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians 5 and Ephesians chapter 2 as we can do our Bible study and continue in a series that we're doing that's talking about heaven. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and then we're going to be in Ephesians 2, plus we'll look in a couple other passages of Scripture. This past week, we had some of our ladies who were here the other morning. They were preparing the men's breakfast. And as they were doing that, when they got into the building, it was still pre-dawn, so it was early in the morning. They decided that they were going to go into the other side of the building and check out the auditorium that's under renovation. Unfortunately, they didn't know where the lights were, so they were meandering through the hallways when in the total darkness. They, uh, they did fine until somebody met them they weren't prepared for. I came walking out in the darkness and they were caught off guard and then they told me afterwards that you're right. This place is a creepy place when you don't have any lights on. You know, that happens to us sometimes we get caught off guard. Somebody comes walking up behind us, somebody catches us when we're not prepared and all of a sudden we're kind of startled, we're shocked by that. And we might bounce, might jump, we might give a little bit of a screech, some of you might turn around and just swing. But there's different reactions that we have to that. There's going to be coming a time that a lot of people are going to be caught off guard. It's a time that people aren't prepared for. It's time when all of a sudden their life ends here on earth and they enter into eternity. Now the eternity part is going to be great. The eternity part will be phenomenal for those of us who are born again. We've been talking about what that heaven will be like. We've said that it's a place that's real, reunions, rejoicing, righteousness. It's a place that's relevant, play, you know, places that we can relate to, the mansions, the different things of that sort. We've talked about how this, this heaven is just so phenomenal, so remarkable, but there is one aspect of heaven that we have not talked about that I want to spend the day talking about. It's something that we're going to experience. That is reckoning. It's not just in heaven, but there is, there are two different judgments that will take place in heaven that affect everybody to some degree. I would like to talk about those, but before that, Let's have a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the promise and the hope that you've given us. But I pray that what we are talking about today would make tremendous impact upon our lives and that you would help us to remember the one simple truth that we want to repeat multiple times so that it makes a difference. Help us to do our very, my very best in relaying this and help folk here to remember in the days ahead so as to better serve you, for we pray this in your name. Amen. We read in Hebrews chapter 9, your notes say 10, excuse me for that error. There's another one that I'll point out later. But Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. There's a passage that says, it is appointed unto man once to what? To die, and then after that, the judgment. Now what we learn from that simple verse, that simple phrase is this, that judgment will take place universally. Everyone is going to be judged. That everyone who dies, which is all of us, because we've all sinned, we're all going to die, that there's going to be a judgment. It is a universal judgment. It is a judgment that, that all of us is go, are going to, at one day, going to face and be a part of. Now we're going to talk about that a little bit further, about that judgment. It's not all that we're at the same judgment, but we're all going to be judged. Number two, out of that Hebrews chapter 9 passage, we learn this. The judgment that we are going to, be, going to face will be based upon what we do in this life. 
It's what we do before we die. It's what we do during this life, whatever it be, whether it be 5, 10, 20, whether it be 70, whether it be 100 years that the Lord gives us. What we do in this life will have tremendous impact upon the next life. We also learn from that passage that there are no second chances. There isn't going to be a time when all of a sudden we die and we're given the opportunity to recant, repent, change, and all of a sudden go back. I know in Hollywood they've given those films frequently that somebody gets a second chance to go back. That what happens in Hollywood, it doesn't happen in our lives. We're going to die. We're going to face a judgment, and there's no second chance. So that means this, that what we do today makes a big difference in our tomorrow. In fact, what we do this week will impact our eternity for all eternity. What a profound thought. How we act, how we live, what decisions we make in this life, in this week, will definitely affect what will happen for the next hundred thousand million years of our existence. That means we better make sure we make the right decisions today. Now that means that said, the Bible indicates there are two basic judgments that are going to take place in heaven. These two judgments are very similar in several respects. They both have Jesus Christ as the, as the judge. John chapter 5, verse 27, The Father hath given unto him authority because he is the Son of Man. He has authority to do the judging. So Jesus is going to be the judge at both places. So all of us are going to meet up with Jesus one day and we're going to stand there. We know that these judgments are similar in that not only is Jesus the judge, that it's going to be, our judgment's going to be based upon what we do in this life. We've already made that comment. And so we'll, depend, we'll develop that in a little bit. We also know that the impact will be profound for all eternity. Now, there are different judgments. They're different in this way. They happen at different times. There are two judgments. One is called the Bema Seat Judgment. One is called the Great White Throne Judgment. One occurs early in the time period of the future. It is the next event, in fact, right after the rapture, that when we get taken away who are alive and remain on this earth, or if we go to be in the grave, when Jesus comes to the clouds, according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, he's going to gather up all of his bride, all of those who are believers. They're going to go back to him with him in heaven. Then according to Revelation 14, we're judged. We will cast our crowns at his feet. Then sometime after that begins the tribulation, Revelation chapter 5, chapter 6. The seal judgments are opened, but only after the, uh, the Bema Seat judgment for the believers. Somebody asked me after the, morning, the early service, why is it called the Bema Seat? The word literally means raised platform. The judges in court, the judges at a race, the judges who were watching the competitions taking place, they always were on raised platforms. Bema simply means raised platform. Jesus will be on a raised platform. We will be standing below. He will judge us sometime shortly after the rapture. Now, by the way, let me throw this out. That means we don't know if, how much of a gap of time between the rapture and the beginning of the tribulation. It could be days, hours, could be weeks, could be months, could be years. We don't know. But we do know that the Bema Seat Judgment is going to take place. The second judgment is called the Great White Throne Judgment. That is a long time after the Bema Seat. And that group is not of believers, but of unbelievers. And that is going to be a judgment where those who are judged at that place, they end up in hell. The people at the Bema Seat, they end up in heaven. So it's a different time, a different result. There's going to be rewards for those at the Bema Seat. There is going to be condemnation for those at the Great White Throne Judgment. We know that there's different evaluations. There's different reasons for the judgment. The Bema Seat Judgment is going to be asking, what did you do for Christ? 
We'll develop that in a few moments. The great white throne judgment is going to be, what did you do with Christ? This one for believers who have accepted Christ as Savior. But what have you done since you've been born again? What service have you done? What, this one is for, why did you reject me? Why did you not let me become your Savior? Why did you hear and refuse and just absolutely insist on getting to heaven your own way? And that'll show, that judgment will show that they're going to be damned forever and ever. So there's differences in these judgments. Let's develop the Bema Seat. Let's do a 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and let's look at it a little bit more in depth and let's talk about exactly what is going to happen because that applies to most all of us in this room, this type of judgment. We're in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Look at verse 1. He's talking in verse 1 about we know that this body is going to die sometime, that this tabernacle is going to be dissolved and we'll have a new body in heaven. And he talks about how that's going to take place. And then this passage goes on and says that we are in this body. We're groaning. We're anxious to be in heaven. In fact, down to about verse 8. It's a favorite verse that many of you quote at times. It says that we are confident and willing rather to be absent from this body and then to be what? present with the Lord. And so this is a passage to believers. This is to those who are born again, who have accepted Christ as their Savior, that it is writing to them and saying, those of us who know that we're going to be with God, with Jesus Christ one day in heaven, how does that impact us? Well, look what he says down in verse 9. Wherefore, we labor, we work, that whether present or absent, we may be accepted unto him. Isn't the idea of allowed into his presence. It is the idea that he will be pleased when we are in his presence. That he will, be, he will be enthused to be able to say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And he goes on. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That is Bema, literally in the original. The Bema seat of Christ, that every one may receive the things done in his body according to that which he hath done, whether good, whether it be good or bad. Now, this judgment that we're talking about, we've already defined when it happens, right after the rapture. We are talking about why it happens. It happens to examine your works, your works done for Christ. Holding your finger right here, go to Ephesians, please. We had mentioned earlier that we were going to look at this text. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2. This is a, such a familiar passage to most all of you. You've memorized it, but Ephesians chapter 2 is a passage talking about how do we know we're going to heaven. And he backs it up and he says in Ephesians, in verse 8, for for by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Very clear. We are going to heaven not because of us, but because of Him. We are going to heaven not because of the good works we have done, but because of the good work He has done. For by grace, God's goodness, we are saved. Not through labors, not through baptism, not through church membership, not through giving money. We are saved by grace through, what's the vehicle? It's faith. Faith. And then he wants to make sure that everybody understands. He says, not of yourselves. You didn't do it. You don't get yourself into heaven. It is a gift of God. Again, he's emphasizing. It's grace by faith, not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. And just in case somebody didn't get the message, he adds this. Not of any work, lest anyone should what? should boast. He's trying to make it very clear, folk. We get to heaven by the work of Jesus Christ, not by the works of Christians. Not by what we have done, not by what our parents have done, not by joining a church. We get to heaven because Jesus Christ died, buried, and resurrected for our sins. We are looking and saying, He is the way, the truth, and the life. No man, including you and me, we cannot come to the Father but by Him. However, that's very clear. But this is the part many Christians forgive, uh, fail to, to look at. The next verse. The next verse goes on and says, we are his poema. 
literally. We are his masterpiece. We are his production, if you would. He says, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works. Okay, unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. I am not saved by good works. You are not saved by good works, but we were saved to do good works. We are saved so that we will do something for Christ, not just get born again and then do our own thing. No, we are saved so that we would honor Him. We would please Him. We would be a musical masterpiece to His glory. We are created, we are left here on this earth unto good works. So what happens at the Bema seat is Jesus Christ gathers us before Him. He, <coughs> he has us stand there and He evaluates our works. Since we've been born again, what have you done? Now some of you are wondering, what exactly is he going to look at? Tonight, I'm going to expand the service looking at the 12 or 13 different statements in Scripture that define exactly what good works he's going to evaluate. You, I, would, I would think it would behoove you to be here to find out exactly what area of your life that Jesus is going to look at so you know what good works that would receive his approval, his commendation, and that you're aware of that. Now, the reason he is examining is Jesus wants to help us, give us something. Now we know in Revelation 4, he's going to give us crowns. However, when we get those crowns, what do we do with them? We turn around and we give them back. So what exactly, you know, is there more to it? There is. Revelation chapter 20, Revelation chapter 22, both make this statement. They make the comment that those of us who have gotten those rewards, we will rule and reign with him. The idea is that Jesus Christ is going to examine our works, going to look at those works, and that will determine what we do in eternity. In other words, what we do today makes all the difference in our tomorrows, in our forever tomorrows. If we are faithful in whatever those duties are, whatever he's looking at, we'll talk about tonight, if we are faithful, then he's going to reward us with the opportunity to rule and reign with him based upon our faithfulness, our jobs in eternity, for all eternity are going to be impacted by what have we done in this life? What have we done for Christ? Have we been faithful in this area, this area, this area, this area? That means what you do within these few years that you're born again will make all the difference for the millions of years that you're living in heaven. Doesn't that impress you to say, well, then I better make the right choices today because I am right now, I am interviewing with Jesus for employment in eternity. I, whatever I do in this life, will have tremendous impact, and I'm going to be able to rule and reign with him if I am faithful in this area, this area, this area, whatever those 12, 13 areas are. If I'm faithful, I will be given not only a crown, but the reward of, of occupation and activity and responsibility, ruling with him. Now, the question that we have is, what exactly happens at this judgment? What will it be like? Well, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 gives us an inkling, just an inkling into what this judgment, how it actually operates, and what we know is it will be done universally. Let me give you several one key words here. It'll be a universal judgment. It'll be done universally. He says, very simply, we must all appear. Okay, the idea is this, that it is, it is not a type of a situation that you can escape, that you can say non-attendance, then you can call in and say, I'm tardy, I'm taking the day off, I'm going to go and you know, play hooky. You can't do that on this one. And you can do it at school, we can do it at work, we can do it with, you'll call somebody and say, hey, something came up, I can't come over, like I said. You can do that with other people, you can't do it with Christ. We must appear. It is going to be universal for all who are born again. It is also done individually. 
Each one of us, we aren't going to appear as a group. We're going to appear as individuals before Jesus Christ. Because he says we must all appear before him that everyone, each one, may receive things done in his body. You see the idea sometimes that you and I, we kind of blend in. There are some people who have visited our church in the last couple of years who will make this comment. I like to come in, get into a bigger church. I can kind of blend in. I can come and go. Nobody notices me. And I just kind of in and out. Some will do this. Some are like me. Some are say, okay, it's fine. I like singing. I can't sing. I don't read music. I, I don't know any of those skills. To me, I just know if it goes up or down or sideways or whatever. That's my limit of reading music. But I read the words. And I watch those little dots, whatever they mean, you know, as I go through. And so for me, I like where we can sing and there's a group. And if somebody has harmony, I can just kind of jump in and kind of blend in with them. Do a solo? No way. No way. I don't want to stand out. I don't want to hear the, the screeching and you know, all those different things. In the shower, yes. But even the dog will start howling when I sing in the shower. I don't have a dog. I'm talking the neighbor's dog. Okay, so we have those types of situations that some of us, we kind of want to blend in. We're not going to blend in at the, at the Bema seat. It's very clear. Each one of us is going to stand and give an account for ourselves. And when he says that we do that, there's, it's not because he's mean to us. In fact, let's go a little bit further. Let's describe it as a very thorough judgment. It is going to be done thoroughly, okay? I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm out of sorts here in my notes, so let me give you the eye that's there. That's one is impartially. It's going to be impartially. We'll do that one first, then thoroughly. Impartially means that there isn't a favoritism that he's going to be playing. There isn't that he says, okay, preachers, you're going to hear, you, you get special case. By the way, in our country, is there favoritism shown at times for money, for position, for color, for gender? Does it happen in business that some people get a break because of gender or because of nationality? Hey, I, I know this was the case. Years ago when I went and started a church out of this area, I was gone for two years from this ministry and went and started another church and we did things that upset one of the men in the community. The man in the community came and told me, he says, I'm going to shut your church down because I wasn't allowing him to do what he wanted to do in the church. And he says, I'm going to shut down Faith Baptist Church up in Lebanon. And there was a church that helped us in, La in Lancaster at the time, Calvary Baptist, says, we're going to shut them down. He said, how are you going to do this? And he held up his hand. And he said, see this? This is what's going to close you down. And he was wearing a ring. Some of you might know the organization that does this at times. This is a Masonic ring. And he told me, he says, I get a lot of favors with this ring. He's, and he, the man was a clever, clever businessman, and really a, a, a nice man, uh, all in all. But uh, here he was, you know, just angry with the Lord. I don't think he was born again, but he was angry, and he was saying, you know, I can shut you know, these things down. He said, well, how are you going to shut a church down? You're taking on Jesus Christ. He said, you don't know the power of this group. He says, I go to court. And he was in court a lot because he was a head of, head of a lot of businesses out of Delaware. He said, I go to court often. All I have to do is I have to show my ring and I get favoritism from the judge. Now, that may be true. I don't know. I don't know if, that's his, if that, he was just doing that to try to really scare me, which he did. I don't know if that's a truism or not. But his point was he thought he was going to get favoritism because of an association he had. You and I aren't going to have, get favoritism because okay, we're going to stand before Christ. He's going to be gracious to us, as we'll see in a minute, but he, there isn't this partiality because, oh, he's got to be more gracious to me because I'm female. He's got to be more gracious to me because I'm a preacher. Okay? In fact, James chapter 3 says this to me, that preachers are going to be under greater scrutiny 
And he says that the te- those who teach are brought under greater judgment than those who don't. The, the partiality isn't in our favor, it's against us. Did, did he say to whom much is given, much is yeah, so when we say, okay, there's going to be a partiality, no, 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 it's going, to be a, it's going to be a judgment, all of us are going to be there who are born again, each one of us is going to stand for ourselves, each one of us is going to stand before him, and there's not going to be partiality shown. He's going to examine our works, very thorough judgment, a thorough judgment. Or he says in this passage, the works and the idea, the things, plural, that are done in the body, according to that he hath done, okay, we're talking about lots of stuff that we have done, whether good or, or bad. Now, the good or bad in this passage, you have to mark it. You have to underline. You have to put something here so you understand. It's not whether it was moral or immoral, whether it was something positive or something that was very evil. That is not the words here. The words are whether it was profitable or unprofitable. It's not a matter of, of, of doing holy things and sinful things. It is doing things that are appropriate, proper, but whether they were really, really profitable and lasting or were they kind of just, okay, you filled in your time. You wasted your time. It's a thorough judgment that he's looking at our lives since we've been born again. He's going to examine what have we done for him. And again, there's several things that he's going to look for in particular that we'll talk about tonight. In this thorough examination that he's doing, he's not only looking at what we have done, but I want you to see he's going to look at something else. Go to your left. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. In 1 Corinthians 3, he gives us more of a description of this judgment. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, down in verse 12. In 1 Corinthians 3, verse 12, he's talking about exactly how this judgment's taking place. It says in verse 12, Now if any man build upon this foundation good silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, Every man's work shall be declared. It'll be manifested. It'll be brought to light. You cannot hide. It is so thorough. You can't hide things that you wish you could hide. You can't, you can't put away things that were wasted or lost opportunities. You know how sometimes we, we play games and we hide? Uh, the favorite game that the grandkids have when they come is they say, Grandpa, can you come out, you know, put your work down, can we go play hide and go seek out in the church for you? Sure, we can do that. But my grandson has a, has a knack of doing this. When he is counting and I am hiding, he watches where I hide. Okay. One, two, three, four. He's a cheater. Okay, he's just, you know, I think he got it from his dad. His, his dad didn't get it from, my, from me, I can guarantee that, no, not me. Okay. When we were growing, when I was raising the kids and we were in our house, we would play all the games. We'd play hide-and-go-seek in the dark, give the kids flashlights, and they could hide. Kids, hide anywhere you want, just if you're in the freezer, let us know afterwards. Um, if, you're, if you're hiding, you know, here, hither or yon, we would play croquet, we'd play football, we'd do different games. And the hide-and-go-seek game, I remember years and years ago, when, uh, when Tony was probably around 10, 12, that means Ben was about 2, that when we would hide, I would always get the youngest kid. They always had to hide with dad. And so where we had our master bedroom at that time, there was a bay windows that bowed out. So we put the bed there and there was this little area behind the bed where the bow windows were. The headboard was there, a block part of the windows. And so I took Ben and we were going to hide in that spot. Tony will never find us. It's dark. You know, we've got all kinds of stuff because not only was there this, this headboard, but we threw all kinds of other junk behind there because nobody could see it. So we threw junk back there and so we crowded under the junk and we're hiding back there. And Ben is so excited. We're so, we're hiding, we're hiding. We're, he'll never find us, he'll never find us. Yes, he will if you keep talking. No, we're hiding, we're hiding, we're hiding. You ever try to keep a two-year-old quiet and say, don't move? I'm not, I'm not, we're hiding. Tony will never find us. Tony cheated. Tony comes up the stairs, Ben, where are you? 
dad. And he's so enthused. Here I am, here I am, here I am. <laughs> couldn't hide. Just couldn't hide with him. You know, so we are found out all the time. Do you realize that you can't hide from Jesus Christ? You say, well, wait a minute. I, I just kind of didn't follow through with that opportunity. It's going to be brought up. It's going to be brought up in this sense of, you know, the, the good works. Matter of fact, the good works that nobody else sees, he's going to bring. He sees. He watches. And so Jesus Christ is one day going to have us bring up all these, these works that we have done, good or profitable, and he's going to examine them. And he's going to see if they're, if they're profitable, I'll reward you with crowns. I'll reward you with opportunities. If you wasted your life, which he talks about in this passage, how some Christians waste their life. Look what he says. In chapter 3, verse 12. Now, if any man build upon this life, this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, or what else do you have an option? Wood, hay, what else? Stubble, worthless things. You have your good things, you have your worthless things. Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. The word literally, what sort, means why. Why did you do it? You see, it's one thing to do things for the Lord, but he's also going to examine motivation. Why did you do what you did for the Lord? Uh, okay, I'll just opening up a little bit of tonight's message. Okay, how did you, uh, did, did you fulfill some of your daily disciplines, spiritual disciplines talked about in Matthew chapter 6 that will be rewarded? The almsgiving, the praying, the fasting. Why did you do it? Did you do it so that people would see? I was uh, reading a sermon this past week by a preacher in the Midwest. And this preacher was driving down the highway, one of the main roads in Chicago, and there was a woman who was off to the side of the road. She was holding a baby, but she obviously had car problems, so he pulled over to be gracious to help her out. Talked to her for a few minutes, found out she had run out of gas. So he went back to a couple miles back to the gas station, bought a gas can, put the gas in, came back, and he said, I'm filling up her gas tank, and I caught myself thinking this. If only my church people could see me now. What a good pastor I am. Have you ever done something like that? Have you ever thought of that? Have you ever thought when you're doing some deed, if only so-and-so could see? Boy, this is really good what I've done. We're going to be tried of why we did what we, why did we teach? Why did we share the word? Why did we stand up and pray? Why did we do what we did with the opportunities that the Lord would give us? It's going to be such a thorough examination. And he goes on, he describes, or we're going to describe it as an examination that is done fairly. It's done fairly. It's not going to be done with any partiality. It's not going to be done with any bias. It's going to be very fair. We are going to get what we deserved. If we have good works, rewards. If we have no good works, we suffer loss that he talks about. It'll be done graciously. Graciously. Well, I am so impressed by this thought that Jesus Christ would reward me for service that he allows me to do. The reason I say that is there's a story that he gave that really impacted me when we were studying it in Sunday school. Go with me to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17. Jesus is speaking to a group of his disciples and preaching, and as he's talking with them, he gives them a little bit of a story of, of life as it is. Luke chapter 17. Look down at verse 7. This is just a phenomenal statement that he makes. In Luke chapter 17, verse 7, and I say that knowing that everything Jesus said was phenomenal, but here we go. In Luke chapter 17, verse 7. Which of you, having a servant, plowing or feeding cattle, will say unto him by and by when he has come from the field, Go, sit down, and I'll serve you. And will not rather, but would rather say to him, Hey, make ready wherewith I may sup and gird myself and serve me till I have eaten and drunken, and afterwards you shall eat and drink. Does that make sense? 
If people in that day had a slave, the slave was supposed to serve the master. Whether he worked all day in the field and came back in, he's supposed to wait upon the master. It's not the other way around. That was just the society. You can condemn it because of the slavery, which we do, but he's just making an observation. He is saying, the servant serves the master. And then he goes on and makes another comment. He says, verse 9, do you thank the servant because he did the things that were commanded of him? I don't think so. I don't think so. Here he comes. He put the food before you and you don't say, oh, you are so wonderful. You're just the greatest slave in the world. No. He's supposed to do that. Watch how he concludes this comment. He says, so likewise, when you, that's you and me, have done those things which are commanded you, say, you say we are unprofitable servants, for we have done that which was our what? It is our duty to pray. It is our duty to witness. It is our duty to serve. It is our, it is our responsibility to give out the word. It is our responsibility to support ministries. It is our responsibility to respond right to different situations. That is just a gimme. We're told to do that, and yet he's going to reward us for that. Something that was our duty, and that's his object lesson here. He's saying that he is the gracious master that not only does he say, you know, do these things, but he, he lauds over us when they are done. In fact, do you remember what Jesus said in John chapter 15, verse 5? This is the passage where he's talking about, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. You shall bear fruit, then more fruit, and then what's he want? much fruit. But he can, he's making these comments, and he makes this comment. He says, because of me, you'll be able to bear the fruit, for without me, you can do nothing. I can't be a witness. You can't be a witness without the empowerment of Christ. I can't speak and preach without the enablement done by Jesus Christ. You can't teach the Word of God without the empowerment of Christ. You can't even live a holy life. You and I respond in anger at times when we ought not. What helps us to overcome? The power of Christ. The power of Christ. Do you realize what he's saying? Jesus Christ is saying, I give you things to do, and it is your privilege to serve me. I give you the power to be able to serve me. And then when it's all said and done, I'm going to give you the credit for it. I'm going to give you crowns. I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you praise. I'm going to give you responsibilities. Talk about grace. And kindness, it is our duty to worship, and yet he's going to give us rewards for worship. It is our duty to be able to, to serve, and yet he's going to give us rewards. Talk about a good God we serve. What an amazing opportunity for you and I to realize that what we do today will impact and make a difference for our tomorrows because of the grace of God. Let me wind this whole section down with those five statements at the top of the back of your sheet. They, we'll just make them very simply. They go this way. Rewards. Rewards as a motivation for service, they are not wrong. They are not wrong. Jesus says, I'm going to motivate you for service by promising you rewards. You and I, I know we can go off and we can get silly with it and go to an extreme, but it is not wrong to give out rewards for merited services. Number two. Second statement, rewards are not guaranteed to all believers. These crowns, this opportunity to rule reign with him, it is not promised to all. In fact, the scriptures warns us in that passage that we read a few moments ago in 1 Corinthians 3, it said this, if any man's work abide which he had built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. Listen to this, and he says in verse 15, 
If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. That, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Oh yeah, you get to heaven, but you got nothing to show. He's basically saying you're there, but you're there by the skin of your teeth. By the work of Jesus Christ, you're there, you're, it's good, but you got nothing to show. You got no crowns to cast back at the king. He's, he says, I'm not guaranteeing every believer is going to get a reward. I understand in America the idea is participation awards. You show up, you get a trophy. I understand that mentality. That's not at the Bema seat. Excellence is rewarded at the Bema seat. Not just showing up. Not just being in heaven. It is going to be based upon what you've done. Let's make a third statement. Rewards are not based upon numbers or size of ministry given to you. The rewards aren't based upon, okay, for a preacher. I have a bigger church than so-and-so, so I get more rewards. No way. No way it doesn't work that way. Oh, I've, got, I've given more money to the offering plate than so-and-so did. No way, it doesn't work that. that he, doesn't, he doesn't look at the, the amount compared you to you and you to you. This is not on a curve. You will stand individually. I will stand individually. He is going to evaluate, not based upon, okay, you know, then just numbers only or just, you know, position that was given. You know, you do realize that some of the, some of the most embarrassed people in heaven who he talks about in 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, he says, be faithful, be loyal, so that you are not ashamed at his appearing. I'm convinced in my heart some of the ones who will be the most ashamed are preachers because they know better. And so he says in this, in this passage, he's challenging and he's saying, hey, listen, you and I need to remember that we don't get rewards just because we were a member of this church or just because we're, we have this in our bank account. It's not the way it works. The number third, the third statement that I want to make, or the fourth one, rewards are, have, are based primarily upon faithfulness. Faithfulness to Christ with what talents, time, and treasures you've been given. It is faithfulness with what times, talents, and treasure you've been given. The opportunities you've been given to be able to serve him. Do you realize that Jesus made this very clear when he is there at the temple in the last week, that when he looks and evaluates, it's not based on bigness and size and amounts. He's not thinking like the typical American. Typical American, we evaluate based upon, you know, greater than so-and-so and more than, than another person. Jesus commends the woman who gave the very most, and he says, this woman's one gift of all the hundreds at the temple that day that he commends is a woman who gave the smallest amount possible to give. Do you remember that? She hath given two farthings. They are the smallest possible coin of that society. She gave so little. It was, it was just, a, uh, just a percentage of a day's needed income to survive. But why was she commended? Because she gave, she gave all she could. It wasn't based on how much she gave. It was basically based on how much she kept. It was basically based upon her attitude of trust and thanksgiving that she just poured out her heart. Do you remember the woman who comes and anoints his feet? The Mary who breaks the alabaster box and she pours it over his feet? She is commended. While everybody else is critical of her, Jesus commends her. She hath done what she could when she could. See, it's not, not okay, you know, how many messages did I preach? That's not what Jesus is going to evaluate. He's going to evaluate, was I faithful? 
with opportunities that I had? Was I faithful in, in my motivations? Was I faithful in other areas of my life? And my position is not going to, is not going to remove this type of bema seed or cover up things. It's going to be stand there and he's going to evaluate based upon what I do with my opportunities, which leads me to this one important thought, that what we do today will determine what we experience tomorrow. What we do today will determine what we will experience tomorrow. That's a phenomenal thought. That is a scary thought. That is an encouraging thought. That even if we do something that nobody else sees, don't worry about it, Christ sees. He has his eyes open while you're hiding. He is counting, he is making, keeping track, and he will reward you for that. Nobody else needs to commend you, nobody else needs to observe, but he watches. And he will return unto you opportunities for service. Jesus Christ is so faithful in this regard that he is keeping an account. I don't know if there's some place in the internet, some boogeyman place, where everything that ever goes through is kept in one hub. If that is true when it comes to the internet, but I know it's true when it comes to spiritual activity and service, that God has one hub and he keeps track of what we do, how we serve, opportunities we had, and what we do with those opportunities. Therefore, what we do today makes all the difference for tomorrow. Watch how that will impact your life if you remember that tomorrow at work. Watch the difference it'll make when you are driving down the road and all of a sudden you get this thought that, that, is, a, that is a thought that is inappropriate, how you handle it by thinking, what I do today makes all the difference for tomorrow. Watch how that impacts your thought when you get an opportunity arises and somebody starts asking you spiritual questions and you respond by thinking in your mind, what I do today makes all the difference for tomorrow. What an incentive to serve Jesus Christ more by letting it sink into our spirit and to realize that this will have profound impact. But you might say, well, wait a minute, it, just as long as I get there, it won't. No, no, I don't think that's true. I think that some of us will suffer loss and will be ashamed. I think some of us will be like that man in Luke 19 where they came, God, the master gave different talents, then he left and he comes back. And there's one man who had multiple talents and he multiplied them. The next man multiplied what he was given. But the third man says, I didn't trust you. Yeah, I knew that you were a tough boss and that you would be kind of austere is the word that he uses in the, in the English. He says, I knew that you could be you know, really, really touchy and I was afraid, so I did nothing, I just hit it. Jesus' response is, take what this man had been given him and give it to somebody else who is faithful. And gives it to somebody else. That man then stands there with nothing. Any of you ever been in Boy Scouts? Not ladies. I know now you could, but when you, any of you guys Boy Scouts? I was in Boy Scouts. I, I joined the troop in Piers, Minnesota, Boy Scouts. There was about 15, 20 of us. We all, for the four years I was in, we all really managed to go high in the rank. We all started as tenderfoots and ended up as tenderfoots. All four years. Because we did absolutely nothing. We enjoyed the Boy Scouts. We had a great time in Boy Scouts, but it wasn't to do the Boy Scout thing. We wanted to do the camping trips to get away from the house and, you know, be off and the guys running around in the woods. We liked that part. We liked the part of some of the, the games and the activities. We didn't like the, the, direct, the, the guy who was in charge. He was kind of strange. He's the same school teacher that he lost his temper one day and took off his tie and strangled a student. We, I went camping with that guy. Okay? <laughs> so we had, we had this Boy Scout troop. Let's pretend, just for pretend, let's pretend we're all in the same troop. We're all Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, or whatever you want to call it. We're all there. And we're going to a camping trip. And on this camping trip, you know, all this Boy Scouts from all different areas, and there's competition going on, all that kind of good stuff. And we're there. 
And this time we have a good scoutmaster. It's dad. Everybody loves dad. Your dad or my dad. Everybody loves the dad. He is a great guy, a good guy. We don't want to disappoint him. And dad says, hey, listen, guys, just as a little bit of extra incentive, this week, let's do this. Let's keep our cabin clean. And if you all do that, and if you all do really well on the, on the Boy Scout stuff, you know, like when you do these different things in the woods where you identify trees, and when you have these different things to memorize, let's all do really well. And if you all do really well, I'll tell you what I do. At the end of the week, I got a new boat, and it's a speedboat. I'll take you out water skiing. And we'll go out there, we'll have the whole day. But if you don't do so hot, you're not going on the, you know, with us on the boat. So the first day, we're there. And if you're like me, you're going to do this. Ooh, yeah, okay, that sounds really fun. So the first day I clean up. First day I listen. First day I get involved. But that was a lot of work for that first day. The second day it's kind of like, clean up this bunk, make my bed. That's why I got married. Make the bed. <laughs> it was a joke. Don't give me any of your anonymous jo letters. It was a joke. Okay. I do, never mind. The, uh, but I get up and I say, okay, I, I'm not you know, making the bed, and you're with me. We're not doing that stuff. In fact, we're not listening to one of, these, you know, one of these presentations. The next day, we're supposed to go out and identify all the trees. Hey, listen, all I care about is it's not poison ivy. I don't care if it's an elm, an oak, a maple. I don't care. I don't know. And so that's my attitude. But then Friday... You know, I remember dad said the boat. Woo! Okay, so Friday, let's get this room made. We do really good on Friday. And it looks really great. But at the end of the day, dad says, hey guys, the deal was all five days to be, be engaged, to be involved. You were Monday, and you were Friday, but you did the Wayne thing Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, the normal thing. Is dad going to let me go on the boat? He should because I'm his son. I deserve it because I let, let him be my dad. <laughs> it's his honor. Isn't that the attitude some Christians have? The reality would be this. We get there on that Saturday, and there's the boat ride. I get to be there sitting on shore and watching, watching the others. Yeah, I can go in the water. I can do the thing, but I'm not on the boat. Is that a loss, a privilege? How would dad feel? I know my dad. I know how I would feel as a dad. I'd be disappointed that not everybody followed through, but I'd especially be disappointed in my own son, who knew better. Yeah, they can come and they can be there, but the participation isn't the same. I think... Based on scripture, I think that's what a lot of people will experience when they stand before Jesus Christ. And it's going to be, oh, I intended to, I wanted to, but I was just too busy even to find out what you were going to examine. I didn't even have time to study the Bible to find out what areas you're looking at. Because something else is more important on TV or whatever. How are you going to get rewards if you don't even know what rewards he's focusing on? Because the bottom line is this. Today, what we do today will make the difference for all eternity. What we experience. That thought, I think more than any other thought in the last couple, couple years, has 
has made a difference in my life in the last few days than any single thought to think. What I do today will make all the difference in 100 years from now. How I act, how I respond, what I do here, how I do this. Curbing, cutting out some things, focusing on some other things. Prioritizing different. I hope it lasts. Because, it ought to, because what I do today makes all the difference for tomorrow's. There's a second judgment. A second judgment that, praise God, most of us won't be there. But maybe there might be one or two of us here that would be there. It's described in the book of Revelation. Now I have in your notes, Revelation 21. Please forgive me for another typo. It's Revelation 20. It's Revelation 20 and it's verses 11 through 15. Revelation 20, 11 through 15. Would you turn there as we close down this morning and finish up with these few thoughts? Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. In Revelation 20, he talks about what's called the great white throne judgment. This is totally different. This judgment is, is a totally different judgment. Now, this is the same judge. It's Jesus Christ based on John chapter 5, verse 27. But the ones who are judged are not believers. Watch what he says in Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heavens fled away. There was no place found for them. I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. The books were open, and another book was open. Verse 13, the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the death, dead which were in them. Now, make an observation. You go back to the beginning of the chapter. The beginning of the chapter talked about a group of people who had been resurrected. It said in verse 5, the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. Blessed and holy is he that had part in the first resurrection, on such the second death has no power. They shall be priests of the God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Verses 5 and 6 are talking about the people who went with Jesus into the kingdom. It is those who were resurrected at the first resurrection, which happens in time period before the kingdom of, of heaven comes to this earth. And it is that time period, that resurrection involves all who are born again from Old Testament all the way through till Jesus Christ comes back. The second resurrection is all the lost, all the unsaved who did not live on the heaven on earth for that thousand years. It is all those who live in this era or in the Old Testament. And they don't get resurrected until the second resurrection after the thousand years. That's what he's talking about in verses 12 and 13. When the sea gives up the bodies, when death and hell give up the, gra the, the grave, gives up the bodies of those people. Those people who had been in the grave, those people who had been in hell, now their bodies and their spirits are reunited. It is all the lost people, all the unsaved people, all the non-born again people, all the people who determined that they would make it to heaven by their good works, that they did not accept faith, grace through faith. They did not accept the idea that Jesus was the way, the truth, and life they thought they were, their preacher was. They thought their parents were. They thought their good works, their good money, whatever. They will stand before him at this time. That won't be you if you're born again. It'll be those of you who are not born again. And he says in this passage, when he talks about the judge, it is going to be impartial, universal and impartial as well. I saw the dead, small and great. It'll be the richest people in the world and the poorest people in the world. They'll make no difference. The money has absolutely nothing to help them escape this judgment. It'll be those who are the most, the most popular or prestigious or in powerful places. It'll be those who are just totally ignored, unnoticed by anybody. 
the small and the great. It'll be a universal judgment done impartially. And what he does is he examines their works. He says they were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. Jump down though to verse 14. Death and hell were cast in a lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast in a lake of fire. How do we put this all together? Let's start with verse 15. The, the criteria is, is your name in the Lamb's book of life? Is, do you have reservations in heaven? The only way that happens is if you call upon Jesus Christ to be your Savior. If you repent of your sins and ask Him to forgive you and say that I believe in you and you only is getting me to heaven, then your name is put into the Lamb's book of life. Then why is there going to be a judgment of your works at this time? If, as we saw last week, it says, they that believe not on him are condemned already, then why does he bring up their works? Two possible reasons. Two reasons. The works come up because, one, he's going to prove to them that this is a just judgment. Their works will, will validate that they do not deserve to go to heaven. In fact, how many of us deserve to go to heaven? None. But the works for those who have rejected Christ, who have, who have discounted Him, there are going to be people, according to Matthew 7, who will stand there at this time and say, Lord, Lord, have not we done many things in Your name? Have not we prophesied in Your name? And they will cast up their good deeds before Him. And He's going to respond by saying, Depart from me, ye workers of iniquity, I never... Never had a relationship with you. You were doing it on your own. And to show that even your good works, as many as they are, they don't stack up to your other works. Because, by the way, the people that he was telling that sermon to who would talk about their good works and their good deeds, do you remember who some of that audience was? The Pharisees. Whose only reason to do the good works was pride. Self-promotion, profit, he'll evaluate their works. Those works will prove that they were not done with good motivation and included in some of that were some of the evil things. And in fact, some of the works that are damning us to hell, that makes us deserve hell, are simple things like disobedience to parents, lying. And there'll be a lot of them. And weighing the good against the bad, oh my, the bad will outweigh the good. We know that. I think there's a second reason why there's a judgment of their works. Their works aren't what damn them totally, but it just, it verifies their damnation of unbelief. But according to Matthew chapter 12, right around verse 40, uh, Matthew 10, right around verses 35, somewhere in there, he says this statement. He says, it, woe unto you Capernaum, where Jesus was preaching, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than you Capernaum. What's he mean by that? He is saying that where he preached one-on-one, face-to-face, those people have a greater accountability than some who never heard the preaching. And they'll have greater damnation. He's even said that about the Pharisees, that they will have greater damnation because they knew better and still they rejected. In other words, and I don't know how this works, there is some degree of punishment in this lake of fire. To me, hot is hot. I don't know how that works. I, he doesn't make us privy to it. But he, makes it, he tells us there's going to be greater damnation for some. The works will verify the damnation 
and the degree of punishment. What a terrible time. What an awful time. What a horrible time for those people standing before. They've been in hell for, let's, let's say they died today. They've been in hell at least 1,007 years by the prophetic charts. They've been in there that long. They get out. <sighs> Relief! I'm out of hell. They stand before God for whatever seconds it takes. And God says, because you did not believe, here's your works. You're going into a worse place than the current hell. You're going to the lake of fire. Talk about pain and agony, how it is magnified because of the awfulness. You, by the way, these are the people we need to warn. These are the people that need you to tell them. And as you tell them, you get rewards. So there's lots of motivation in this passage, which brings me to these final thoughts. Okay? The final thoughts. You and I, let's, let's conclude this way. You and I face a future judgment. We all do. Every one of us. It's going to be the Bema seat or it's the great white throne judgment. You're going to face a judgment. None of us is going to be able to hide. None of us will find an excuse. We will be there. What you do today determines what you will experience in eternity. Whether you'll be at the Bema seat or whether you'll be at the great white throne. What you do with Christ. Now at the Bema seat, if you're born again, then at the Bema seat, what you do today, this week, determines the rewards that you get. The amount of opportunities. Which leads me to a third sta statement that is critical. Today is your second chance. Do you understand? Oh, if somebody had warned me. You're being warned right now. Oh, if only somebody had said something. I'm telling you. This is it. This is your second chance to make a difference. To just, just hang on in case somebody's not saved and we don't want to distract them. This is your day of making a difference. This is the second chance you've been given. Do you, some of you remember the story of George Washington crossing the Delaware? Yes, no? Going into what city? Do you remember this? This is, an, this is a fact. This is history. Christmas Day, George Washington crossed the Delaware. He led a surprise attack at Trenton, Jersey. The man in charge at Trenton, his name was Johann Rall. He was a commander of Hessian troops there. There was 900 of them. That's Christmas Eve. He's there at the place and he put the troops on Christmas celebration, the Hessian troops. He was celebrating with some of his officers and was playing cards in the parlor. One of the British loyalists, a Tory, from in the Philly area had heard about Washington's movements and came down to where the Hessians were and with a warning that George Washington is crossing the Delaware. You're going to be attacked at sunrise. But Colonel Rawl was too busy playing cards. His orderly came and said, somebody has an urgent message. He said, write it down. I'm busy. He was on a winning streak, by the way. And so he didn't want to stop playing cards. So the orderly went out, got the note from this Tory citizen that talked about Washington, surprise attack, crossing the Delaware, going to attack in the morning. Brought it. Colonel Rawl took the note, put it in his pocket, continued playing cards. Never read the note. Now you know historically that by dawn the attack took place. Many of the Americans, they couldn't even fire their weapons because the guns were wet from crossing the, the Delaware. They used them as clubs and bayonets and they surprised the Hessians and you know the story that many of them just gave up quickly because the surprise attack. Well, one of the people who ran out of the building when the attack started and tried to leave a countercharge was Colonel Rawl. 
he was shot. A mortal wound. Didn't die right away. The surgeon comes up to him as his troops are surrendering. The surgeon is dealing with him and unbuttons his vest. As he unbuttons the vest, the note fell out of his pocket. Colonel Rawl picked it up and read it. His final words were, if only I had read this warning, I would not be in the predicament I am now. If only you listened to this warning by this feeble preacher, make a change in your todays because they make all the difference in your tomorrows.